Good morning. I want to uh, share a story. It's, it's weird. It's about a really weird bank robbery. One that, that no one saw coming, at least not the, the results of this bank robbery. Now, it started out normal. The bank robber comes in, he pulls his gun out, he starts waving it around, he shoots a few bullets out into the, to the, to the crowd, the walls, so they know he means business, right? And then he takes a few hostages. He takes one man, three women, and at one point he even put nooses around the hostages' necks so that they would know that, that he meant business. So he was terrorizing them. They were afraid of this bank robber. Uh, things went along for a while. It was a very long hostage situation. lasted about 131 hours. But this is the weird part. When it was all done, the hostages were more upset with the police than they were the bank robber. And it gets weirder than that. One of the women that was taken hostage actually ended up engaged to the bank robber. Yes. It's like, what? What are, you, what are you talking about? They refused to testify against the bank robber in court. So the FBI, they analyzed this, and believe it or not, this is not all that uncommon. This happens, and there's a name for it. This occurred, this bank robbery occurred in 1973 in Stockholm, Sweden. Okay, so many of you probably you've heard of something called Stockholm Syndrome. And what happens is whenever a person's in this high-stress situation, uh, there's some, some psychological things going on, obviously, but when you're in this life-threatening stress, and then you have a positive human interaction with someone, even like the bank robber who started out shooting the place up, but then evidently was positive after that, the hostage will eventually begin to transfer their hatred to the person who least deserves it, in this case, the policeman. And they start to get the impression, because that guy hasn't shot him yet, well, he really doesn't want to hurt me. Now, when you hear about a situation like that, and I couldn't help but think about even the, um, the Elizabeth Smart situation to some degree, uh, you, you just, you're kind of like, well, what? Well, how does this happen? Can't, I mean, he came in here with a gun and put news, shoot the place. And you, and you got engaged to him? Really? So to say it's disturbing is kind of an understatement because, you see, they saw, so, they saw so clearly in the beginning what was going on. They saw so clearly that this guy came in there to rob, them, rob the bank and do them harm. But then as things went on, it got cloudy, and their understanding of the situation became darkened because of stress and, and other things. So all of it became confused. And then they started calling the enemy their friend, and their friend, which in this case was the policeman, their enemy. You know, the longer you and I are here, and by here I mean on earth, in the United States, in Wyoming, in Sheridan, the longer we're here, the more susceptible you and I are to succumbing to something like Stockholm Syndrome. 
Uh, it doesn't necessarily happen overnight, but it's trusting voices and bad ideas that at some point that you could have seen a hundred miles away that it was wrong becomes more and more cloudy over time. And I'm thinking about a young person maybe that grew up in church and clearly knew right from wrong, but then along the way, uh, because they saw what everybody else was doing and it didn't seem so bad, that they started participating, maybe drinking more than they should have and going to parties they shouldn't have. And maybe they had a really smart professor who knew how to twist the truth just enough to make Christianity sound like a really bad idea. Or maybe a business person who, when they started out, knew the importance of spending time with family. But... As time went on, as they saw the successes, as they saw that the more time they put in, the more money they made, family kind of started drifting into the backdrop. That can happen to pastors, too, very easily, by the way. So all of these things can make us susceptible to this Stockholm Syndrome. And I'm thinking of a church that maybe at one time knew the authority of Scripture, then for whatever reason... Maybe they thought it would bring in more numbers or whatever began to water down the truth. By the grace of God, I pray that never happens here at First Baptist Church. So the question that we have to address this morning is how do I live in this world in which God has sovereignly placed me? I, I am where I should be. How do I live in this world without becoming more and more like it? How do I not become like it? The passage we're going to be looking at this morning is Ephesians Chapter 5, verses 7 through 14. Ephesians 5, 7 through 14. And I would ask you to please join me for the reading of God's Word. Therefore do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For it is light that makes everything visible. This is why it is said, Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. You may be seated. So we'll go through this passage this morning. We're going to see three commands. We'll look at three commands, and then we'll look at our responses to those commands that we see here uh, in the Scriptures. Three commands and then three responses. First, I want to do a quick review. Okay? We're right in the middle of this series called Learning to Walk, and we're looking at this fledgling church in Ephesus that Paul had written a letter to, and he's focusing very much right now on their conduct. He said, I don't want you to go back and live the way you did before you became a Christian. So he's being very specific in what he wants them to do. And he uh, started out in this section by saying, walk in unity. And we said you can walk in unity by checking your attitude. Are you being humble, using your gifts? How are you contributing to the church, to the body? And then resisting comparison. We don't compare ourselves to other people. Um, I caught myself comparing myself to somebody this past week. It's so easy to do, but it's never helpful. You either feel inferior or superior whenever you compare yourself to somebody. 
Second was to walk in holiness. And simply, uh, by loving God and others well, we can walk in holiness. And that's about looking out instead of looking in. How we are walking in holiness very much has to do with how we're treating other people. And then uh, third, walk in love by abstaining from pornography is something that's so pervasive in our society. Uh, being thankful, okay? Relinquishing the selfishness, turning it outward to thankfulness, and then being content in Christ. And I mentioned last week, if we could be fully content in the love that God has extended to us, we would be so much less needy, especially when it comes to those things like Facebook likes and Twitter hearts. We wouldn't have a need for these things if we could be content in the love that Christ has for us. So today we're going to be in the next section of Ephesians, and we're going to take a look at this first command. We actually find it in verse 7, where Paul says, Therefore do not be partners with them. Now, to know what he's talking about, we've got to go back to verse 6. Last week, we talked about these sons of disobedience. And even though we as Christians from time to time disobey, God does not categorize us as a son of disobedience. This speaks to an identity that you and I do not have. Do we disobey from time to time? Well, you betcha. Paul wouldn't have to keep commanding us not to disobey if Christians just naturally obeyed. But we're not characterized as a son of disobedience. Therefore, Paul says, do not be partners with them. Now, that raises all kinds of questions. And I can't help but think, well, what were these Ephesians thinking the first time they heard that phrase? Don't be partners with them. But well, what does that mean? Scratching, I'm scratching my sharp hair to you, by the way. Did you see? Um, they had to ask, okay, so I, I, I buy my sandals from from this guy over here, but I, I don't think he believes what I do. Does that mean I can still do business with him? Or, or well, my sheep wool supplier, I'm not so sure that they're walking with the Lord. Does that mean that I can't be a partner with them or, or be involved with them? So what does he mean by this? Uh, what do I do with this? And let's talk a moment about what Paul means by becoming, uh, not becoming partners with or involved. First of all, it can't mean a total disassociation, right? Uh, this can't mean that I'm just supposed to sort of shut myself completely off from society and then go live in a, in a commune somewhere. I, I don't think that's what he's talking about. Um, and, and later we'll see that Paul is calling the Ephesians to be a light to the world. Well, you, you can't be a light to the world if you just completely shut yourself off from the world. So that's not really an option. And then we have the example of Christ. In Matthew eleven nineteen. 19, he was going out and spending time with the sinners. He was eating with them, and he was drinking with them. So when we're talking about not becoming uh, partners with them, it, it can't mean completely shutting yourself off. Also, if I'm called to go out and share the gospel, well, i got to share it with the people who have not yet believed it, and that means being with unbelievers. So we're talking about not being partners. We can't mean that it means to completely dissociate yourself, to shut yourself away in a, in a commune of some kind. So the passage isn't implying that, but rather what Paul is saying, I believe, is that we do not participate in their lifestyle. We live differently. 
And this gives us the opportunity to function as a light in the world. Uh, so as Christians, we believe that we've put, been put on this earth primarily to bear witness to his truth, to serve as the representatives of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, a local body of believers is a local representation of the body of Christ. Christ is at our head, and we are his body. So, then what are we talking about? What kind of partnerships do we mean? Because there's business partnerships, there's friendships, and there's marriages. And I think this is a good principle, and I found this um, from Focus on the Family. It's a good starting place, is asking yourself this question. What is the likelihood that my testimony for Christ will be compromised or harmed? What is the likelihood that my testimony for Christ will be compromised or harmed by being partners with this person, by being involved with this person? That's really the main issue. And a good second question to ask, I believe, is will I in any way be shaped negatively by this partnership? Is, is this going to have more of a negative influence on me than I'm going to have on it or him? Or her. Um, so just thinking through these different kinds of relationships, first of all, let's just think about a marriage. Because Paul's very explicit when he talks about marriages. In 2 Corinthians 6:14, he says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Now, this is significant when we start talking about marriages, because a marriage is a unique relationship. It's when two people, the scriptures say, become one one flesh so this is a union that's very difficult to reconcile when one person's a believer and one person's an unbeliever now it, it, it doesn't have to that doesn't mean it has to end in divorce as a matter of fact the scriptures say that pray for your partner who doesn't believe ideally it starts out with both people being believers but i'm sure as a matter of fact i almost guarantee that someone in here came to faith in christ because of the prayers of their spouse and that's, that's awesome. But it's also very difficult. And if you're here this morning, and if you're not married to a believer, I know that I'm praying for you. I'm praying for your situation. Because it's hard to do when one person's moving in one direction and knows what they're pursuing, and one person is not. I also want to mention that if you're here this morning and you're, you hope to be married, you're thinking about dating somebody, Make sure they have the same faith you do. I think that's very important when you start talking about who you're going to live the rest of your life with. So young people, if you're, if you're a believer here this morning, look to date other believers. Someone who shares your faith and your convictions and what should or should not be done outside the bounds of marriage. So then, marriage is, is unique. There's, there's nothing quite like the marriage relationship. Um, but what about a business partnership? Can I enter into a business partnership with someone who's not a believer? Well, a business partnership is dissolvable, dissolvable if it needs to be, right? You can have a contract up front where you sort of explain how it's going to go forward, and if it doesn't go that way, you've got an exit strategy. So, for example, if just kind of off the top of my head, if you're a, a doctor, if you're, for example, an OBGYN, and you go into a partnership with another doctor who's an unbeliever, and you have resolved that you are not going to perform abortions, 
You can have that in a contract. So it's different. Uh, it's different in a business partnership. But, again, you've got to be careful. Marriage is death till you part. Not so much with businesses. But then what about friends? Um, see, there's kind of a bottom line we're talking about here. And that is who is having more influence on who? I encourage Christians to have relationships, friendships with unbelievers. I, I think that um, people who live near you, people you're around, people in your, your workplace, yeah. But what you have to ask yourself is, am I having more of an influence on them? Or are they having more of an influence on me? That's the key, and it's going to come down to personality types. Um, some people have a personality that's just less influenceable than others, and some may not. But I hope that you'll be able to evaluate and determine, you know what, this person, I've just got to have the strength and the humility to say, they're going to influence me more than I'm going to influence them. And then you've got to be very wise about how you're going to have interactions with that person. How much time are you going to spend with them? What kind of places are you going to go with them? So all these things uh, will, will contribute to this idea of living in the light. So first of all, um, well, hold on just a second. We, keep, we need to go on a little bit further. Verse 8. Uh, he says, therefore, you were once in darkness. Let's just stop there. Because he doesn't really say, for you were once in darkness, does he? Paul says, for you were once darkness. That's kind of a scary thought. But see, in this place I was in before I became a believer, sin was so prevailing in my life that I was actually just kind of spreading it around, living under its power, living in its realm. I was actually darkness. It wasn't light emanating from me. It was darkness that was emanating from me. And that word darkness, it's this word, uh, it means, um, it's, it's skotos in Greek, and it used to refer to the netherworld, this place of the dead, this darkness where the dead resided. And to speak of it is to speak of the realm and power of sin. And it's as though sin's power was being emanated through us, and we were spreading its power completely under its control and approving of its deeds. Fortunately, if you're here and you're a Christian, that's changed by the grace of God. So we're no longer part of the darkness. So then the question is, well, what do we do? And the scripture says we live as children of light. But what does that mean, to live as a, as, as a child of, of light? Um, it means that we are no longer stumbling around in the dark without purpose like we were. Now, I know that you're sitting there thinking, but Chad, you don't understand. I, I have this friend, they're an unbeliever, and they've got it together way more. Well, hold on. The Scripture's saying th that's not the case. The Scripture's saying that until we come to faith in Christ, our true purpose is not known. And that's where we were living at one time before we came, became children of light. By the way, do you know why uh, bugs and moths are oftentimes attracted to light. 
is because, and this is a theory, okay? This is, I studied this past week. If there's any, any bug people out there, don't, don't hold me to this. But this was, as I understand, the best theory out there is that they use the sun and the moon for navigation. They know they're supposed to keep a certain angle with it. So when they see another light, like a fire or a, or a, a candlelight, they will actually start circling around it. A lot of times they'll spiral closer and closer until they what? They'll fly right into it, and it'll incinerate them. You see, you and I are also meant to follow a light. But some lights out there are lights that we should not be following. Uh, I don't think it's, it was not obviously for no reason that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, he warns us that Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. He's drawing people to himself. So when an idea is just a little bit off, when there's a false teacher who teaches things in a way that's just a little bit, that's, that's going to attract people to it. And it can attract Christians to it if we're not very careful. But how cool is it that you and I get to reflect the very light that emanates from our God? That his sons, and, his sons and daughters, we get to imitate him. So then the person reflecting this light will, as the text says there, produce fruit. As it says there in verse 9, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness. That would be generosity to others and righteousness and truth. Then finally in verse 10, we find out what pleases the Lord. Other versions say, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And that literally, that literally means to, to test it to approve it to be fit or good, that you're testing what is pleasing to God. Because you see, in life, we've we got to make a lot of decisions, right? Now, some decisions are clear in Scripture. Children, obey your parents because this is pleasing to the Lord. Okay, that's straightforward. But you see, then there's the other, these other decisions that we have to make. I mean, because there's... There's Hondas and Chevys, and, and then there's, um, you know, there, there, there's Labradors, and there's all kinds of decisions you've got to make that the Scriptures just give us principles on that we have to make. Who am I going to marry? What job am I going to take? What, what am I fit to do professionally? And see, we gotta, we've got principles that we use to make these decisions. And by the way, when, you, when you've taken it through the wickets of Scripture... When you've determined that something is not a sin, you know how you decide what the you know how you determine what the Lord's will is? You decide. God has a hundred ways of stopping you from doing something if if He so wills it, if you're making the wrong decision. He could have very much caused us to break down somewhere between Charleston and Sheridan, Wyoming. I don't know. He has ways of stopping things from happening that he doesn't want to happen. So as we're working through um, what God's will is, we take it to the scriptures, seek counsel, but then you decide. You decide. Decide and trust God. So to walk in the light and not be partners with evildoers is very simply to know your limits. Someone said once, how wide do I open up my windows to let the world in? To what degree am I going to allow myself to be influenced by the people around me? Do I have a relationship with this person or that person? Well, to know those things, you have to know what your limits are. If you have struggled with alcoholism, 
going out and having a ministry to somebody in a bar is not a good idea. Um, and, and fill in the blank. Fill in the blank. And this is going to look different for everybody. Uh, in my parents' generation, um, people were not allowed to play cards. So I, I know people that they, they don't believe they should play cards. Okay, if you believe that's a sin to you, then don't do it. But you know what? You shouldn't hold other people to that same standard. Because this is going to look different for everybody. So, first of all, we can walk in light by knowing our limits. Not being partners with evildoers. But at the same time, knowing how you can prosecute life alongside evildoers. Then we get to the next command. And it's in, in uh, chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. There's a the second command, to expose these deeds of darkness. So again, reiterating this point of staying away from sinful deeds, he issues this new command. And previously he was focusing on evildoers themselves, but now he's talking about specific deeds and calling them out. And uh, in this section, he's, he's focusing on the conduct of believers. It's important that we understand something, because we're, we're talking a lot about the do's and don'ts. We don't make God love us more by what we do or don't do. He loves us. He's declared us righteous. It's out of our love for him that we choose to conduct ourselves in a certain way, in accordance with the scriptures. This is, this is like life maintenance we're doing here. Amen. So... Um, it's just it's important to keep that in the forefront of our minds as we're, as we're traveling through this. Um, so then, let's enter into this, this idea of, of calling sin, sin. It's called to expose sin. And the first question we've got to tackle is, well, whose who's sin am I called to expose? I mean, is it, is it anything I see anybody doing out there? Is it, is it the guy that lives next door to me? Is it, um, who is it? Is it the sin of the unbeliever? So I think it's important to note here that Paul is not talking about exposing the sin of the unbeliever. And I love this, um, this quote. This is from uh, Harold Honer. He said, Christians, by conducting themselves as children of light, expose the deeds of darkness. These deeds, however, refer here to the deeds of other believers who are not walking in the light. This is because only God can expose and convict unbelievers' deeds. Believers, on the other hand, can expose evil deeds among other Christians within the church. So that's a really important distinction. By the way, why would we hold unbelievers to the standards of the Scripture? They never agreed to that. They never said, I'm going to start walking in accordance with the Scriptures. No. We're to bring them the gospel. I, I'm not really concerned with what sins a, a, an unbeliever may or may not be involved in. I'm concerned about them meeting Jesus. That's why we share the gospel. So believers, on the other hand, can expose evil deeds among other Christians. Um, we're not holding unbelievers to the standards of the Bible. So the who we're talking about are other believers. Probably other believers in our church, among us. So then the question is, well, how? How do I go about confronting this sin? Because there are right ways and wrong ways of going about this. That's, that's for sure. The first thing you have to remember is, is to do this with love and humility. Okay? 
Um, especially if this is a sin that you personally don't struggle with. It's very easy to get prideful, thinking, ha, well, I don't, I, don't, I don't do that thing you're doing right now that I'm calling you out on. No, you've got your own list of sins over here. So the right place to start is where Paul started. Remember what Paul said about his sins? He said, I'm the chief. I'm the chief of sinners. So that's a great place to start that their sins are not worse than your own sins, than my sins. By the way, they may have no idea what they're doing is wrong. And they just need somebody to come along inside them and love them enough to, to say, hey, you know, let, let's talk about this. Um, I know that personally this has deepened friendships when guys I know called out stuff on me and vice versa. But you need to start with an attitude of love and humility. And then I want to offer you a process and this comes uh, right out of Matthew 18. And step one is you go to the offender first. You don't talk to their friends first. You don't tell your spouse about it first. You go to them first. Say, hey, um, can you talk about this? Um, it's very easy to try to write, get a group, especially if you've been offended by somebody, to go out and, and, and form this, this mob with its torches and pitchforks, right? That's, that's certainly not what the scriptures are saying here. That is not what we want to do. Um, so first you go to the offender. Then, then secondly, if that person refuses to listen, you take others with you. Mature believers that, that get the process, that understand what it is that you're doing. And by the way, the goal here is, is repentance and restoration. Okay, that's the purpose of this. Um, it's not to pit people against each other. And then step three, if all else fails, um, then you take it to the church. Uh, this happens from time to time. It's, it's heartbreaking. Uh, again, the goal is that this person will come to faith. Or they will at least come to repentance if they have not yet done so. By God's grace, it doesn't go this far. Hopefully the person's already repented. Um, I've seen this happen and the results have been wonderful. I've seen this happen, and it's, it's heartbreaking. The person continues on in their sin. But you're not responsible for them if you have taken these steps. The responsibility is on their part to decide what they're going to do with it. You know, by the way, the easy thing to do is to let somebody continue in darkness. That's the easy thing to do, right? But it's not the loving thing to do. And it's hard but it's necessary. So we walk in light, um, first by knowing our limits, secondly by lovingly exposing darkness, by lovingly exposing the sins going on in the church. And then we, we see the result of this in verse 14, for it is light that makes everything visible. This is why it is said, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Everything's made evident in the light. The picture here is a believer whose deeds have become so dark that it's just like they're dead. It's like they've become completely, they've become so much like the world that they are completely ineffective in what they're doing and how they're going about being a Christian. And Paul's saying, wake up! Get with the program! Can you see you're drifting here? 
As a matter of fact, John Piper uses this illustration. He says, you know, there's two kinds of Christians out there. He makes, it, he makes it kind of black and white. I really like to think of it more as a, a spectrum. He says, you know, on one hand, we've got these, what he calls jellyfish Christians. Now, have you ever seen a jellyfish swimming around? It's not very impressive. They're not trucking, right? They're kind of oozing. And they're very susceptible to just wherever the current's going, just kind of traveling right along with it. But then on the other hand, he said, you've got this other kind of Christian, and he calls them dolphin Christians. A dolphin that can swim against the current, doesn't just drift along with the tide. A dolphin can work actively against those currents that are trying to make it go in one direction, and it can go in the other direction. And he's saying all this to say that we as Christians who are in the, the oceanic depths of culture can choose if we're going to drift along with like a jellyfish or if we're going to swim against the current when we need to. But this is a group of people Paul has identified. They're asleep. It's like they fall asleep at the wheel. And they're just traveling along. So, so how do we walk in the light? We walk in the light by knowing our limits, lovingly exposing darkness, and then finally waking up. And then we have God's approval on us, Christ shining upon us, as the text is, is saying here, that we're fully alive, fully awake, fully participating in what we believe to be true. And in closing, I want to, I want to share this, this story with you. I, my dad and I, uh, this was probably oh, 15, 20 years ago, uh, we went fishing together, actually we went with a group of guys, and we did one of these fly-in trips to Canada, where you, uh, we actually got on a plane in a place called Armstrong Station, uh, took off from a lake, we went, and we, we landed on a huge lake. Uh, it was uh, bigger than any of the lakes back in, in West Virginia at the time. And we were there for a week, there was one cabin on that lake, and we were all staying in that cabin, and we would go out early in the morning and fish till late at night, and this one night, we, we really got into some fish. I mean, we were catching walleye and pike like crazy and then there was this amazing sunset and, and we he and i were, were kind of off on our own and we're just looking at that beautiful sunset by the way wyoming has got beautiful sunsets too i keep keep being impressed with this state so we're watching that sunset there in canada and it was just beautiful and it was amazing and then we realized it's getting really dark and we are really far away from the cabin so we uh we turn around, we start scanning the shoreline, and it, it, it's a whole lot darker than we even realized it was. But there was one boat, it was an aluminum boat, turned over on its top, and it just happened to be catching those very last rays of the evening. So we just turned our boat and just set the nose of it right on that light spot. That was the only thing we could see. And that's what guided us in through the darkness to get back to where we needed to be. Do you know that you may be that aluminum boat that's catching those rays of light from the Lord and reflecting it out into the darkness so that somebody out there might see that light that's in you and God may use that, that light, to bring them to faith. You and I emanating that light as children of light, guiding others faith in Christ. Please pray with me. God, I pray that we would be fully in the light.
God, I pray that we would be living out the love and the light that you have given us. And God, I ask that you would give us courage. Lord, right now, I'm sure that someone in here is thinking about uh, some, something that needs to be exposed. Uh, a friend that they love dearly um, that, that needs to have their sin exposed by, by the light. God, give them the courage. Give us all the courage to do that when we need to. And Lord, help us to do this with a humble and loving attitude. Help us to be fully awake. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Amen. Thank you all so much for being here today.